May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In case you've ever wanted to know, a typical morning in the home where teenage boys reside goes something like this. Mom or dad get up early. Before anyone's up, someone, usually mom, heads to the, uh, the kitchen to start coffee. As they enter the kitchen to start the coffee, the light is on. Of course it's on. It was off when they went to bed, but it's on now, you know. And, um, and, and so, they, you know, mom or dad walks towards the refrigerator, and there on the counter is an open bag of potato chips. And next to the open bag of potato chips sits a plate that looks like it had been cooked in a microwave oven, you know. Maybe it had an enchilada on it or something like that. And, um, and it's sitting right there, so, of course, the chips have to be put away, and the plate has to be put into the dishwasher. And, and then um, the, uh, the parent begins the move towards the, uh, towards the uh, uh, coffee pot and discovers that there are four or five Apple Jacks. That's cereal. Not, not, a, not a whole bunch of th- just little pieces of cereal on the counter. And those have to be like they just jumped out of the bowl to save their lives at the last moment, you know. And, and, and so they have to be squipped off and, and put into the, um, the garbage. And then uh, you make your way over it. And, and there's on the other counter discovered another bag of potato chips. These are tortilla chips. Variety, after all, is the spice of life. And so um, those have to be folded up and put away. The coffee is finally made. The parent begins to trudge towards the bedroom to pick out clothes to begin to wear, start the work day. And whilst walking past, the family room sees that the light's on and the television is on. And there are four or five, maybe six boys asleep on the couch down there. Only two of them live there. I don't know where the others come from, um, but they're there. And there are cups and bowls and plates and empty soda cans all over the room. And the parent stops and thinks to his or herself, did we have dinner last night? I mean, I'm sure we had dinner last night. And, and of course, I remember what was for dinner last night. And, and they go through and... And then why is all this food all over? And and who was eating apple? Well, everybody was eating apple jacks, it seems, and everything else under the sun that could possibly be eaten, potato chips and bowls of salsa and all those things are are strewn around the living room. And and you ask yourself a question. Do these boys ever stop eating? They just must eat from the time they wake up until the time they go to sleep and, and then just start it all over again. And as you know, teenage boys and perhaps teenage girls, I don't know, I have no experience there, are simply famous for their ravenous appetites. They can't get enough. They'll eat anything, anything that is like not moving, and even sometimes if it is moving, you know, to capture it and, and then eat it. You know, things like pizza and chips and Oreos are high-priority targets, but, you know, anything will do. It's like watching cheetahs on the Serengeti, you know, just it, it, always on the lookout for the next meal. And I found it interesting, and maybe you have too, to watch as they grow up how there's this, this subtle shift that occurs from teens to 20s. All of a sudden, things are more important. There's more discriminating taste that goes on. You know, they're asking things like, were chemicals used in the raising of this product? Really? Um, is it organic? You know, um, is it GMO-free? I need to know these sorts of things, you know. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, aren't you the same kid that was eating Apple Jacks at 3 a.m. just a, you know, a few months ago, maybe a year ago? As people age and mature, they become more discriminating about their, their food. They're more interested in the quality of food. You know, we have all these modifiers, organic and something free and, and free range and all that sort of stuff. 
We're more concerned as we get older about our food. Uh, anybody remember the, the Joni Mitchell song, uh, Big Yellow Taxi? Um, it, it, she says this, hey, hey, farmer, uh, put away that DDT, leave the spots on my apples, just give me the birds and the bees. You know, we're, we're all of a sudden worried about, about things that are going into our food. And that's the thing about maturation. We realize at some point in our lives that food isn't just about sustenance. It's about getting the right sustenance. We're worried about what sort of food we put into our bodies. And it's a luxury that we have living in the richest planet, on the, uh, the richest country on the planet. If we had to scavenge for food, we might be a little less discriminating. But we get an opportunity to think about what it is that we're going to put into our bodies, the quality of food. Um, once a month, you know, the, our church goes to, to the Church of the Holy Spirit in inner city Akron, and, and we prepare a meal. Um, Deb Heidenreich is our cook. And she's a fantastic cook and, and, and uses real good ingredients. And we, and we cook food for, the, for people that haven't really been accustomed to eating really good food. And they come in and get it, and all of a sudden their eyes are really big. And they're, they're, wow, this is fantastic. In fact, some of the adjectives that they use are not appropriate for a minister to use in a pulpit. But they are really excited about the quality of the food that comes out. And, and they'll tell us, and they'll come back for seconds and thirds and fourths and, until it's all gone really excited about having good food, and we do know how to appreciate it, don't we? In John's Gospel, Jesus, or John tells us a story about Jesus feeding 5,000 people. He does it with just five loaves and two fish. And after he feeds all these people, there are 12 baskets of leftovers. This is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. The only miracle of Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels is Jesus feeding the 5,000. And right after the miracle happens, do you remember the story? Jesus disappears into the crowd, and they're hunting for him, and they're looking all over for him. And the next day, he, he runs into him again. And you know, it's interesting what Jesus says about the meal the previous day, the meal that he himself had provided for the people. He says to them, it really wasn't that good. Now, remember, when they ate the meal, they were ready to make him king. When he tells them about the meal, he says, you know... It really isn't that, it's really not that satisfying of a meal after all, was it? In fact, you should work for things that are much better. You should work harder at eating better food. Listen to what he says. He says, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Don't get all, all hung up about fish and bread. It really isn't that good of a meal. Look for things that are really satisfying. Don't waste your time on cheap food. Work for really good food. And what sort of food, pray tell, is that? Well, he tells them, doesn't he? Verse 35, he says to them, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. What kind of food are you really looking for? You're looking for me. That's what he says. And this is a curious thing to say because he's a human being. He is, after all, not a fish or a loaf of bread or a carrot, right? But he's saying, I am the sort of food that really satisfies. What in the world does that mean? Two things, I think. The first one is is that he's using this in a metaphoric sort of way, right? He's using himself as a metaphor for food. Uh, the teaching that Jesus gives is the food that really endures. This is all over the Bible, right? The idea that, that teaching and that, that good doctrine is food and sustenance-like. Um, Jesus is tempted by the Satan. You remember this. 
and he's tempted to turn stones into bread. And what does he say? He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Later on, St. Paul tells the Corinthians, I would like to feed you with solid food, but you're not ready. You have to live on mother's milk. He's saying, I would like to teach you more complicated doctrines of the Christian faith, but you're not ready for that. You still need the very basic elemental level of, of teaching. Jesus is saying, when you receive the doctrine, when, you're, when you listen to my teachings, when you begin to embrace them and put them into your life, you will begin to be fed by a food that really satisfies. You will be transformed. You will begin to live the life that you were meant to live. You will live the way that God created and designed you to live. And you will know what real life is like, what real, genuine life is like. Listen to what he says in verse 47. He says, um, Truly, truly, I say to you, that whoever believes has eternal life. If I'm your sustenance, and if you believe in this sustenance, then you have eternal life. Now, there's a real problem with this because everyone, I think, who hears this, at least in our context, thinks that means that when I die, I'll go to heaven. That after death, there'll be life left for me. Well, of course it means that. Of course it means. But that's not all that it means. Whoever believes has eternal life, has it in the present tense. He actually says, truly, truly, I say to you, that whoever is believing already has life eternal. Right now. Right now has life. It's more clear in the next time he says it in verse 51. He says, I am the living bread, the one who comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live into the ages. Now, that's not the way it's translated in, in most modern English translations. Most of them says that he will have eternal life. That's not what he says. He says, you will live, and, and the preposition into, ace, into the ages. We'll have life now, and we'll continue to live into the ages. Humans need food, right? I mean, you could go without food for, you heard about Elijah, went without food for 40 days. But at the end of 40 days, if he doesn't eat, he's going to die. You've heard of people going on hunger strikes in, in prisons or around the world in some sort of protest. And they can do it for a, a while, you know, 30 or 40 days. But if you go without food for more than that length of time, 30, 40 days, you will die. You will die of malnutrition. Your body cannot sustain that forever. What Jesus is saying is you need me. You need me like your body needs food. You cannot go without me. I am the thing that will sustain you now and into eternity, into the ages. The second way I think Jesus means this in, is a literal way. Less metaphoric, more literal. We're going to deal with this uh, more next week. But, but what he's saying, I came down from heaven. You know, this was, a, this was known as a, uh, an aorist tense. It happened. It was an event in time. I came down from heaven. But he also reverses it and does it in a present tense. He says, and is coming down from heaven. Brian Stoffergen is a uh, Lutheran uh, pastor and scholar. He wrote this. Uh, he talks about these two different uses. There was a particular moment in history, he says, when Jesus, quote, came down from heaven. But what is this bread which continues to come down? Could it be anything else but the bread 
of Holy Communion. You see, communion is, is, is participating, is actually consuming the very body of Christ. And it is in consuming Him that He actually sustains us. That we take Him into our body, into our lives, and He sustains us. And we can live, not just to find a way to kind of jog our memory and, and behave for yet another week, but begin to really live. To be, live the kind of life that God intended us to live. So what does this mean to us? I mean, how do, we, how do we live this out? Well, I think the first way is that we allow the words of God, the words of the gospel, to dwell in us deeply. We allow the word of God to dwell in us deeply. Can I, can I get a little, uh, you know, I, I've been going a whole week, so, you know, you, you had a week off, but can I get just a little bit of, of, of discomfort? Can, can I kind of put us in a, and I'm, I'm right there with you, so it's as much of me as it is anybody else. You know, I, I thought about how, how easy it is for us to know policy positions of different politicians and not know the 12 apostles. We probably could tell you who's running for president right now and do it on a list of, uh, I don't know how many, it seems like there's 67 people running for president right now, but we could probably tell you almost all the names. And how many of us, if I ask for a show of hands, please don't do it, uh, would be able to know all 12 apostles, all 10 commandments? I don't just mean trivia. I mean, how much of this is like really part of our life and our thinking, the way that we, we kind of go through it on a daily basis? I mean... That we can spend a lot of time reading newspapers and Facebook pages and Twitter feeds and never take time to open up the Bible. That we are in such a privileged position as people who live in the 21st century. You walk into any bookstore, any, it doesn't even have to be a Christian bookstore, any bookstore, walk into any Christian bookstore, download an app on your phone, and you can have 66 books of the Old and New Testament at your fingertips in a moment. And they sit on our shelves and collect dust. And flip through the apps that are most used. And it's maybe not the most used. How do we live and sustain a life when we don't even take the words of life into our... You know, we're just filling up on potato chips and Oreos. We could name a string of quarterbacks for the Cleveland Browns over the last decade. Oh my word, have you ever seen the shirt? You know, uh, And not be able to, to know what's going on in the New Testament, not having read the Gospels. We have access to all sorts of information, the Word of God, and we choose stuff that really doesn't sustain and fill us. The meal of Holy Communion. Um, there's, a, there's a great Latin phrase about communion that scholars used to use, ex opere operato, which means this, that when you take it, it's done. You know, that there is a miracle that takes place in the receiving of communion, and it is transforming miracle. But how much more? How much more if we came to the table hungry that God would, when we receive this meal, this holy sacred meal, that he would transform us through it, that it would be medicine to our souls as the ancients used to talk about. How much more powerful, how much more effective would it be in our, in our lives? Not a rote, you know, kind of behavior, but a precious one. One that we long for and look forward to and miss when we can't have an opportunity to have it. We need real sustenance. Real sustenance in our lives. And Jesus says he is that sustenance. Uh, this past week... Um, 
a friend of mine, uh, a very good friend. He was like a he was like a surrogate father to Abby and me. He was like a like a, a surrogate grandfather to our children when they were young, and we lived in Kentucky. His name uh, was Tommy Dregu. Tommy, uh, that's what people name their children. <laughs> and, and, and but people called him Goose. Everybody knew uh, him as Goose. He was um, he was a super sweet, uh, kind, gentle. Um, thoroughly decent human being um, that I love very much. And he passed away suddenly last week. And so I went down to Kentucky for the funeral. This little church that I pastored out in the middle of nowhere, one you'd never pass on your way to anywhere else. You had to be going there to get there. And, and we went, you know, I went down there. Abby couldn't, she couldn't, had to work. But I, I went down to this little church, and it was, um, it was a wonderful celebration of this man's life. It, the church was packed beyond measure. We had set chairs in the aisleways. People came out to celebrate his life. They sang um, songs that I don't really like, but they all seemed well then. You know, they seemed good. All these old gospel songs. And after, after the service was over, after the funeral service was over, we all went back to the back room, you know, the, the fellowship hall is what they called it. And, um, and they brought out fried chicken and green beans and, um, and bread pudding and corn pudding and pudding pudding and every other sort of food that you could possibly imagine, southern comfort food. And we ate this food and... And we laughed and talked and told stories and cried. And I thought to myself, you know, there's two ways you can leave a funeral. I've done many of them myself. I've been more funerals than I could possibly imagine and um, preached more of them than I can even count. And I thought to myself, you know, there's two ways to leave those places. Either filled with hope or filled with despair. And when I left Goose Dragu's funeral, I was filled with hope. I know where that man is. I know where he is because I know where he was. When he was alive, he was living that life that he's already and still living now. It matters what we eat. You know what? It matters what we eat. It matters what sustains us. It matters now, and it will matter into the ages. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.